Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I have the vexing way of Delaware ladies. <laughs> Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, and what kind of white man would willingly submit to the whip? Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of the Howard School of International Relations and post-colonialism. Dan, always a good, always a good lens. There you go. Always. Yeah. Today we'll be talking about Colson Whitehead's *The Underground Railroad*, which is a book mm-hmm. that people can get anywhere you get books, which mm-hmm. is a lot of places. So, so go get yourself a book. I, I think we both do recommend this. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, you should, should. You should read the yeah. book. Yeah. 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 We should read it. Mm-hmm. In the next few weeks, we will be talking about *Nope*, which I'm excited about. I, I for some reason, avoided it, but good, good excuse to watch it. I have not seen it either, and yeah, I'm kind of curious. No, no denying. And then we're going to do Tanana Rive Due's My Soul to Keep, which I, I now have, so I'm looking forward to reading. Dan still reads paper, everyone. Dan, I do still read paper books. I am, I'm sorry, I'm going to be the last paper book reader. That'll be my, you know, tombstone. You know what will cure you of that, Dan? Um, Moving running out five of room? times in There you go. Years. Yeah. Yeah, fair enough. That'll do that. That, yeah, true. <laughs> And we are taking suggestions for what we do next. A good way to make a suggestion is to do so on our Discord channel. But unfortunately... But Anna, how can you get on our Discord channel? Well, it is limited to people who are patrons, Dan. Oh, so if if you become a patron, then you can help us and make suggestions for what we should review. Yes, that is correct. And you get to just enjoy the Discord channel. That's true. That's true. It is one of the many benefits of being a patron. Also, you get access to monthly AUAs as well as early access to podcasts. And once we hit 250 patrons, we will do a patrons-only episode on a topic chosen by the patrons. And it can be anything. doesn't have to be sci-fi. And I want to say that all of these benefits exist. (laughs) Sometimes they seem not to. (laughs) Much like an underground railroad? Yes. They are creations that happen as we create them. There we go. They are the products of both our imagination and our work. And Mm -hmm. we create them through existing. Dan. (laughs) Yes, we manifest them, as it were. And we intend to manifest them. If you do otherwise want to reach us, we are available on social media. Not so much on Twitter anymore, but we are on Mastodon and Post. And we are doing other things. Anna, I believe you have a website where you, like, do stuff there. I have a website. It is AnnaMarieCox.com, which is kind of handy to remember. It's basically my name. <laughs> yep. It isn't just basically my name, although I haven't added .com to my name yet. Yes. But you can come up with my reading, my writing, my doing of workshops, all sorts of things. You can also follow me on Instagram, where I am pretty active. And if you follow me on Instagram, you will get to see lots of pictures of my pets. Dan, that is that, that is, is the primary function is, of Instagram in my life. I think that's a good that's a, that that is a a positive use of Instagram. And Dan, is there a way that people could follow you if and maybe see pictures of your pets, or, or is there some other other thing you're doing? I I have a Substack, Anna. You know, I oh. I'm, I am laughing. At the collapse of newsletters. I am defying the collapse of newsletters. I have a Substack. It's called Dresner's World. And it's actually doing pretty well. I feel like I'm finally getting into the rhythm of it after about like four or five months of like remembering what it's like to just sort of plain old blog. But having a lot of fun with it. And, and I just suggest adding more Mimi content. I will definitely Substack. consider like I might just have a Mimi like Mimi photo of the week. I think that would actually probably be a good thing. You would be surprised. That could actually maybe yeah. not surprised. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, it's fair like enough. That. Fair enough. People yeah. like pet pictures, Dan. 
Yeah. That is my donation to you as a social media expert. You are my social media advisor. I like this. This is good. Yes. Okay. Fair enough. Yes. Okay, Dan, we have been chatting, but we're going to talk about the Underground Railroad. Mm-hmm. Why are we talking about it? Anna, I can only assume it's to just constantly remind and goad me that my wife has the biggest intellectual crush on Colson Whitehead, I believe possibly in this country, Anna. Or maybe I'm mistaken. The point is, is that my wife really digs Colson Whitehead in a way that I find mildly infuriating because he really is a great writer, and yet it's still, like, just, you know, it, it's slightly annoying because, like, you know, he's won the Guggenheim. He's won the MacArthur Grant. He's won the Pulitzer and all of these things. And it's almost like my wife is reminding me that I have not won any of these things. <laughs> well, Dan. Yes. I think your wife has some company. No! I, not you too, Anna! It pretty cool, I gotta say. God like, damn it. I read a bunch of interviews in preparation for our conversation, and yeah. I was sending you excerpts, because he's just a yeah. cool dude. Like, in the acknowledgments, he, like, thanks David Bowie and Sonic Youth. <laughs> that was, friends. yes, yes. No, no, like, I, you know what? I read that, and, like, I felt the same way Jason Siegel does in um in forgetting sarah marshall when he deals with the russell brand character and at one point just fuck you're cool man you know and like that's how i feel about colson whitehead like i want to hate him and i don't actually he's just a fantastic seems like a fantastic human being someone i would love to hang out with as well i just wish my wife were not quite as eager to hang out with but i get it yes and i think one but so more seriously why did we think of it for this podcast well it's one of those books that people who don't like science fiction, quote unquote, mm. like. Yeah. Now, that is because this book is not really science fiction. It really is. Like, I just realized we've gone from Groundhog Day to this. We're like skirting the very edge of like the the like sci-fi universe for us. It, I think it does qualify as sci-fi, but it's barely. Oh, oh, I, I, yeah. I think it I think it does. I think. Well, we're going to have a really good conversation about this book, I think, because mm-hmm. the ways that it is and isn't genre and who the readers are yeah. is one of the things that makes the book interesting. Yeah, I agree. That's so, that's correct. Yeah. We'll talk more about that, but it's won all the awards. Oh, Just God, so many awards. All yeah. of them. And, yeah. and I occasionally like to eat my vegetables in terms of, you know, literary fiction. Mm-hmm. And this seemed like maybe in terms of literary fiction, if it's a vegetable, it is like cheese smothered broccoli. <laughs> um, trying to think what Which would be for to say, me. Not actually something you don't want to have. Okay, for the record, I would delicious. hate cheese-covered broccoli, but for me, I think I only think of it as a cucumber salad, which I do love to eat and is nonetheless vegetables. What so, about yes. really deeply roasted Brussels sprouts? Ooh, okay, yeah, now we're in agreement. This book okay. is the deeply roasted Brussels sprouts of, yes. of science fiction. I think that that's the highest compliment. Or literary, so, it's literary. Yes. Literary equivalent, yes, yes, exactly, yes. All right, next question, Dan. Will this podcast ruin the book for you? In other words, are we revealing so much in this podcast that unless you've read it, you, sh- you shouldn't listen? And I think the answer is categorically no on this. There's a few plot details we're going to talk there about. There is one twist that I kind of want to talk about. But okay. I think that it would not ruin the book to no. know it. No, and I think as we will talk about, I think particularly folks who like to listen to this podcast will not be affected by the plot reveal. Would that be a safe way of putting it on it? 
Very, very safe way of putting it. <laughs> oh, I like the way she's not. Good, good, good. No, no, no. So, yes, I think you can listen without having read the book. And, indeed, it might inform your reading of the book is the way I would put it. Yeah. Quickly, we get to previous experience. Anna, any prior experience reading this book? Lots or of like, awards. You know... I saw this book win all the awards. <laughs> and I remember thinking to myself, that guy wrote a really good zombie novel, apparently. He did. So maybe this is a book I would like. Sort mm-hmm. of thinking to myself zombies are are good yeah reading material what would he do with something like this so i was intrigued then that's about it and i maybe i'll just talk more here he really does seem like a cool guy (laughs) (laughs) my previous experience is like you i i've read zone one which is quite a good zombie novel and indeed it helped it it makes an appearance in in theories of international politics and zombies multiple times mostly my experience with this book was like you i thought oh at some point i should read this but again my main experience with this book prior to actually reading it for here was watching my wife reading it and just saying, this is amazing. This is amazing. Like, you know, as near as I can figure out, there have been two authors that she has read where like, she is just like captivated. One is David Sedaris and this, and, and Colson Whitehead is the second one. It's an interesting combination. Interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. I really like your wife. I mean, we haven't <laughs> actually met, but I think she has excellent taste. She does have do. excellent taste. Yes. I agree. She yes. seems like a, a cool lady. In, in much the same way that Colson Whitehead seems like a cool dude. So they can never so meet. So congratulations, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get to the story behind the story. Anna, I think the most obvious question is, where did Colson Whitehead get the idea for this? So the, the, the basic premise of this book, and this isn't a reveal, is that it's a slavery narrative. It's about folks escaping, you know plantations via the Underground Railroad, except in this case, the Underground Railroad is literal. I kind of love this, even though it's obvious, which is that when he was a kid, he thought the Underground Railroad was a railroad. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, totally fair. And so when he was like learning about it in school, he just assumed, as one might. I remember having a vague theory, a vague thought like this myself when I first heard about it. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I had this image in my, of my head of Harriet Tubman waiting beside some train tracks. <laughs> By the way, I hate to say this, but like, I believe Mel Brooks is coming out with History of the World Part Two. It's coming out on Hulu, I think, next month. And I think one of the things from what from the trailer, I actually do think you see Harriet Tubman in a real Underground Railroad, played by Wanda Sykes, of course. <laughs> so you know, a rare Colson Whitehead Mel Brooks crossover potentially. And you know, this stayed with him. He had the idea sort of come to him on and off through his writing career i think he said 2000 the year 2000 is when he first thought of it Uh. but but considered himself unready to deal with the weightiness of the narrative and i think we can say it's probably good that he waited i gotta say like honestly i I mean like god damn it now i even think more highly of colson whitehead because like it it takes a tremendous amount of self-knowledge and maturity to think this is a really great idea i am not ready to write this yet and to wait to write it, which is kind of extraordinary if you think about it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of extraordinary. And it's one of the many ways he's magnificent. Yes. And I think it's also interesting, this endeared him to me because it made him more human, which is that when he sat down to actually write it, he like mm-hmm. got out all of the stuff you're supposed to read for for a book like this, like all the Tony Morrison, Eric. Oh, Thomas, beloved. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all of like the big weighty slavery tomes. And then he decided, nope, 
I'm just going to write it. <laughs> Which, again, nicely done, because I could easily see having read all of those just being so incapacitated that you wouldn't wind up doing it. Well, I will say, like, as a scholar, I also admire this, because one of the things that sometimes when you're trying to particularly if you're a grad student, you're coming up with a dissertation topic. One of the things you're supposed to do is read the literature, and that's entirely appropriate. But I remember there were certain grad students that you could tell they were going to have problems with the dissertation because what they would wind up doing is only reading the literature, the, the conviction of they need to read more and more and more, and they would wind up getting so paralyzed with the thought that someone surely had come up with the idea they had come up with that they wound up not writing. And so, well yeah, done I don't know what that's like at all. I, I really have to stretch my imagination to, to understand what that might feel like. Yeah. yeah. Fair enough. Okay. One thing that he did do was read actual slave narratives, Library of Congress, mm -hmm. slave narratives. And also, I recognize this pretty straight on. I think most sophisticated readers would. The fugitive slave advertisements that are interstitials in the book are... Real. Yes. Yeah. Real. They are no, no, no. When I read those, I was quarters. wondering like where he got... I mean, like, again, it's, it's an odd thing to think about the way in which fiction writers do research. But this, that you could tell, this is a book that clearly there's, he's done the work as it were. I think what he would say is like, he's done a lot of the emotional work of it yeah. like by reading those first person accounts yeah. rather yeah. than, than looking at people writing, uh, other people writing about those first person accounts. Right. He did the good. University he, of yeah. Chicago approach, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> totally fair. Totally fair. Out of curiosity, which parts of the book, like, you know, there were parts. That I, I one of the, the one of the interesting things reading this book was there were times where I was wondering, wait, is that real or is it not? Like I couldn't tell. I mean, obviously, I know the Underground Railroad was not an actual railroad, but like for example, there's a sequence set in South Carolina where there's like a twelve-story skyscraper, and I'm not sure if that was real or not. Actually, don't think that was real. Yeah, I don't think so either. Yeah, there are, there are things also that are kind of an that have obvious historical antecedents. The eugenics experiments, the Tuskegee Institute syphilis experiment. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. And then there's some that people might not be aware of. There is a slave narrative by a woman who was in an addict for seven years. Really? And, oh, my God. Yes. Because that, that really did feel like Diary of Anne Frank, obviously. But, I mean, that was what it first reminded me of. But I'm assuming there, were, there might have been more going on. Yes. And, and right down to, and, and he clearly had some influence from that because one of the quotes from that diary or, or that autobiography is about she had a little eye hole in some newspapers that she uh, watched. Okay. You know, people's lives unfold. And that is mm -hmm. what happens with Cora. Yeah. There is, of course, lots of violence to draw from for this yep. there are some specific instances he might have been thinking of one is the state of oregon dan okay which you might not be aware the state of oregon obviously western state established yeah. as a free state in terms of not having slavery mm -hmm. also no black people allowed i did not know that good lord you didn't know that yeah no. the state of oregon allowed no black people for decades jesus okay i don't think that they were met with the weekly lynching that happens in, in the state, state of North Carolina. Yeah. In the state of North Carolina. But yeah, there's a deep history of white supremacy in the Pacific Northwest that hmm. would surprise a lot of people because it's considered sort of hippie, you know, loosey goosey, we love Mother Earth. But there's also a long history of environmentalism and white supremacy walking hand in hand. So we'll yes, just move true. on from that one. I don't know what you're talking um, about, Ada. I live in Massachusetts, <laughs> which is an incredibly progressive state, but they have had no racial issues in this state ever, really. I mean, you know, come on. 
Sorry. But there's also specifically, there was a, a massacre in North Carolina called the Wilmington Massacre that people talked about after January 6th. You may have heard of it then. Mm, no. When it was during Reconstruction, there was a mostly black city council mayor, et cetera, elected and a white mob overthrew them. Yeah, there are various, like, echo, like there are echoes of, of significant moments of black history and American history throughout this novel. And, like, I have to admit, you know, towards the end, like, I kept thinking, okay, when are we going to get the Tulsa massacre? You knew that was, in some ways, I was not, I was not surprised by how, what happens in Indiana in the novel. Yeah. Also, one last thing is there was a slave that I think it's been pretty historically grounded, mailed himself to freedom. And that wow. is an aside in okay. this book. All right, Anna, this is a rare case of, I think, a book that is just a book. Is there any, we, you know, we've talked many times about how IP is a flat circle. Are there going to be any developments of the book into something else? Interesting question. Uh-huh. <laughs> there is a, a Barry Jenkins miniseries that came out this year that I now will watch. I'm curious about how one would adapt this. Oh, this became a TV. This is, there's actually a TV show that already exists on this. Oh, my God. I didn't know that. Yes. What is. is it on? It is on Hulu. Oh, okay. And oh, wow. So Hulu reviews. did. I mean, there's there's just too much prestige to TV. I know. It's interesting, though, that Hulu did both Underground Railroad and it did Kindred. So I just find yes. that intriguing. Yeah. That is interesting, although they have not renewed Kindred. Oh, okay. And I think also we will note that Ben Winters, friend of the pod, Mm-hmm. has written a book not related in an official way no. to this book, but called Underground Airline? Airlines? I believe so, Underground Airlines, where the, it's a, it's sort of an alternative history where I don't think slavery is in, there's no civil war. And so there is still slavery. It's like set in the modern age and, and slavery still exists in like four states. And obviously there's an Underground Airlines as opposed to Underground Railroad. So to be clear, not impinging on IP here, but I just think it's yep. interesting that yeah. it's sort of in, also in recent history of someone else grappling with the same stuff. Yep. All right, let's get to Chekhov's What's It? Particularly appropriate for a novel, obviously. This is the thing that appears in the first act that winds up making an important appearance again in the third act. Anna, what do you have? Dan, I have Chekhov's idea of freedom. Ooh, okay. It's a We're little weighty. <laughs> That's a Delaware lady kind of comment on it, but go ahead, keep keep, keep it up. Just to briefly defend it, I don't want to get too far into this, but one of the points I think this this novel makes is that freedom is changeable. Mm -hmm. It's contingent. It's contingent, and oftentimes when we think we're free, we are not free. Yeah, yeah. And I think that kind of circles back around. That's fair. tightly. I think that's, yeah, no, that's, that's definitely true. All right. Fair enough, Anna. I have, uh, and it's a slightly odd one, it's Chekhov's mother. This was one of the odder choices in the book, although I kind of like it in the end, and we'll talk about it then. But essentially, the protagonist's name is Cora. Her her mother is Mabel. Mabel's only talked about for the first part of the book. And then we find out what happens to Mabel in sort of an odd interstitial chapter toward the end. I think that, that that's pretty good. She goes off, as it were, yeah. I would say. And that is the one, the fate of Mabel is the one thing I might want to do a spoiler alert about yes i think we will offer a spoiler alert for that although as i said i we, we have thoughts about this so we will, we will yes. a little bit later. <laughs> all right so this is a very complicated novel and we have a new way of dealing with super complicated stuff <laughs> that, that yes that allows dan to not spend several hours going through a book and just maybe just an hour <laughs> 
this is a tremendous <laughs> time saver on I'm not going to lie like you know yes and we're I think our general rule is we are going to do this with most books going forward this is how we yes. will treat books on space the nation which is to say we're going to start by sort of giving the jacket blurb version of the plot rather than providing that much more detail then we'll talk about how it's different or similar to other sci-fi and then we will discuss the characters and what we liked about it in particular as well as the sort of the passages that really uh, moved us. So let's get to the jacket blurb. The jacket blurb version of this story is that Cora is a young woman, a slave on a Georgia cotton plantation, and a social outcast even among the other slaves on the plantation. Fearing the rapist intentions of her new owner, she agrees to follow fellow slave Caesar's plan to escape the plantation. Caesar asks her because Cora's mother, Mabel, is the only slave to have successfully escaped plantation before. Cora and Caesar manage to do the escape, but the cost is high. Cora kills a white man who tries to capture her. They flee using the Underground Railroad, which in Whitehead's novel is also a literal railroad, dug out deep underground. Trying to escape capture, Cora travels across the South and sees a variety of racisms, ranging from the false enlightenment policies of South Carolina to the, quote, final solution, end quote, ethos of North Carolina to the scorched earth of Tennessee to the quasi-free soil of Indiana. All along the way, Cora is pursued and or captured by Ridgeway, a sort of Javert-like slave catcher who has never recovered from not catching Mabel, Cora's mother. Along the way, we meet a panoply of characters who all have one thing in common. No matter how hard some of them try, they cannot escape the peculiar institution of slavery and the ways in which it warps their character. Anna, does that about sum it up? Yeah, I have one quibble. Okay, go ahead. Which is that I think Caesar does not choose her to escape with just because he thinks she's lucky. I think you're correct about that, yes. That is what she thinks. Yes. She thinks that she's just his lucky charm. Mm -hmm. He admires her. Yeah. Her her willingness to put her body on the line right. for freedom. Yeah. No, and no, that's true. And, and one of the things you learn in the first part is that, yeah, I mean, like, she literally puts her body on the line to shield another slave who's about to get whipped. And so I think you're right. That moves Caesar, who is someone who's very interested in escaping and, unfortunately, I think departs the novel a touch too quickly. I agree. When we talk about characters, let's talk about Caesar. Yeah, yeah. So this is maybe where we can dip into our allusions to how our listeners might not be as baffled. Yes. <laughs> By the plot as, as, as non-sci-fi yes, devotees. Yeah. As, as non-sci-fi. People who are not sci-fi readers might experience this book in a different way than sci-fi readers. That is, that is something that I told you right away. When you agree. Do you want to say like what what your feeling about that is? Well, my feeling is that there are ways in which, you know, again, and, and by the way, I this again, cue swoon music. <sighs> you know, this is where Whitehead really is a, a very unique author. I mean, the, the only other comparison I can think of is in some ways Margaret Atwood, who is mm. someone who can simultaneously write what we would consider literary fiction. Because I, I believe he's won two Pulitzers, one for Underground Railroad and one for Nickel Boys, which I've also mm -hmm. read, which is... I actually think I enjoyed a little more than this, um, and it's also a fantastic read. But he sort of incorporates genre tropes into this book, and I think the most obvious is is that this sort of pursuit by Ridgeway, this sort of, you know, slave catcher, there's a point where it seems like he's been permanently stymied, and, you know, that's where Cora manages to escape Tennessee and move to Indiana. And, you know, 
I was like, okay, Ridgeway's coming back. There's there's no denying that. Like that that is going to happen. That is the way this this book has been structured. And I think part of it is because I'm just sort of used to the the genre fiction that we have consumed for the podcast. Would that be a safe way of putting and it on? Yeah. I mean I'd say the general shape of the narrative. Also, I don't know if this is the American history, <laughs> you know, major mm-hmm. me or or sci-fi, but like South Carolina was too good to be true. Like Yeah. You know, immediately it reminds me, you know, of the Ray Bradbury Mars story almost, right? Mm-hmm. It's so welcoming immediately. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Something must be wrong. Yes. No, no. I remember reading this. It was like, I don't remember South Carolina being like this in the antebellum era. That that seems a little off to me. But like, you know, you knew where that was. Yeah. You knew, that knew where going. that was going. And, and, and the other thing I would say about that particular, well, you said, I think you put it well when you said a variety of racisms. Yeah. Each stop along the railway is a, it's not quite this clear cut, but it's almost this clear cut. It's a different way of dealing with racism. Oh, it is. It's, it's, that's it's absolutely white what it people's is. Yeah. different ways of dealing with racism. Yes. They're all bad and all tragic. Mm-hmm. There's another way in which genre readers might, you know, I think the word is twig to something, okay. which is like sniff something out here, which is, ha, Dan, the railroad is a, is built by human will (laughs) what do you know dan (laughs) that's the magic in the book is that it it's it's built by the will to survive like Mm -hmm. that is the the final reveal of the book is because there's sort of a question like who who possibly could have built this who could have built this and And it's never answered the answer given by various conductors is who builds anything yes at first, I was like, okay, well, that's just kind of a cheeky way of saying black people, right? right? That is that is what they mean by that. At the end of the book, when Cora needs to escape what is much like the Tulsa massacre, right? she goes to what is supposed to be a terminus right. of the railroad or an unfinished part of it yeah. and starts to, you know, move a handcart of one of those, I think, those seesaw handcart things. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And you know what? The tunnel keeps going because her will to survive. And I was like, as soon as she got on the handcart, I was like, ah, yeah, this is what they mean by who builds anything. It's that (laughs) those who believe in the idea, those who believe in the idea of freedom built this. Yes. And I think that's a genre savvy kind of (laughs) thought to have. I think that's fair. Do you want to talk about Mabel at this point in terms of the plot? This is the, the uh, this is the one spoiler alert I think we might want to alert our readers to if you have not read the book. Yes. So spoiler alert, we won't spend too long on this. I liked it as a twist. Yeah. As someone with mommy issues. <laughs> <laughs> so the plot twist is it you know, we think that Mabel is the only one who has successfully escaped the Randall plantation which is where the novel starts off with. It turns out we learn that that is not what happened that Mabel tried to escape changes her mind, can't abide the thought of leaving her daughter, decides to return, is bitten by a copperhead snake, and dies. Yes, cottonmouth. Cottonmouth, yes. sorry. Cot, uh, cottonmouth snake. Um, well, they're, and, but, yeah. they're, all, yeah, yeah. they're all poisonous, Dan. Yeah, they're just they're poisonous. Right. And what I meant by sort of as someone with mommy issues who appreciates <laughs> that, Cora is confused and driven by her and, feelings for her mother. Oh, I would say bitter and resentful is the, are the, the words I would use. She, I would I say mean, she's also confused by it. She has feelings about her feelings. Yes, that's fa- uh, that's fair. But like, she, there is a serious amount of anger that Cora has towards mm-hmm. Mabel because of mm-hmm. this. So yes, yes. 
All right, how is this science fiction different from all other science fictions? On a... <laughs> well, first we have to ask, is it? <laughs> <laughs> well, leave it this way. I, the, the thing that we have discussed before that this book really did keep reminding me of, and maybe this is because we need to read more African-American science fiction, is that it reminded me of Octavia Butler's Kindred, in that it is science fiction that really only has the barest wisp of science fiction in it. In some ways, it's a little more present in Butler than it is in, in Whitehead's novel, because in Butler's novel, there's genuine time travel and so forth. But in both cases, the predominant amount of the story has nothing to do with, with the science fiction aspect of it. It's just life on a slave plantation or life in antebellum United States. Yes, I, I'm really glad we've read Kindred. I, I do think yeah. we should read more black authors. Yes. In general. <laughs> and we're going to do that think, in part with Tananana Riva Duet. Yes. One thing I thought about a lot reading this, it gave me sort of a new insight on Kindred a little bit, which mm. is, I'm going to be careful about saying this as a white person, but I'm going to okay. go ahead. Yeah. That's also, always sounds bad when you start that way. But yeah. That, exactly yeah. Okay. Bad. Be careful. One of the fantastical elements in these books is is the peculiar institution of slavery. And if, I'm not saying that it's fictional. I'm saying mm -hmm. that if an alien was to come to Earth and, and you would tell that alien, what has happened here is that one class of people whose skin is this color has decided that another class of people are not real people. And our property. And our property. Yeah. There is something wild about that yep and i think both of these books somewhat intentionally are playing with that like yes the science fiction element of these books helps exaggerate how incredible to use the word almost literate like well, incredible I, the idea of, of this institution is that the, I, that this could happen i think the way to put it is that to the extent that sci-fi deals with a question like slavery. I mean, again, one of the advantages of genre fiction often is that something takes place on another planet. And so we get to observe the institution that is clearly a mirror of whatever is actually going on on Earth, but we look at it in a slightly different way and it allows us to look at it in a detached manner. Neither Octavia Butler nor Colson Whitehead are doing that with this, which is they are exposing readers who might otherwise not read these books to realize oh my God, this is what slavery was like? This is what life on a plantation was like? And indeed, I think one of the slyest things that Whitehead does is that fake museum in South Carolina. Oh, uh, that's so good, yeah. Yes, yes, you know, which is just clearly, like, supposed to be a satire of, like, all of the various Southern narratives about, well, you know, life on a plantation was actually pretty sweet if you think about it, you know, and, and just, like, completely sort of destroying and eviscerating those narratives. And in that sense, and I think both. And yeah. destroying the narrative that the Underground Railroad was like, and then they were free. Like right. all of these helpful white people. Yeah. <laughs> help those slaves, you know, get on the Underground Railroad. And that is what the Underground Railroad was, was like this passage, this like venture of a lot of white people and mm -hmm. black people who made a thing happen and then it was good. Right. Yeah. One of the ways that it's important that the Underground Railroad, it, it was the freedom that was our Underground Railroad all along. And mm -hmm. I don't say that to make fun of it. But one yeah. of the reasons that's important is that it's a black freedom. It's a black notion of freedom. 
it, mm. th- that white people can't make this railroad. Mm. This is not this is not a you could not a white person could not go down there, I think, in the logic of the novel and do the handcart and then suddenly the tunnel would appear. This is something that is created out of the particular experience of slaves or yeah. enslaved people. I think that's true. And I, I would say, let me put it this way, would both novels avoid very, like, and, and it, it never even occurs to you reading it, is there is no white savior in Mm-mm. in either of these novels. There are white characters, and we could talk about the differences here. And I think, you know, Whitehead is, in the sense of, like, it's not just there are varieties of races, and there are varieties of white people, like, you know, and there are varieties of, of uh, you know, Black people. I mean, Whitehead treats people as people. So, but the there's sort of oh, one sort of good white guy. Well, there's a few sort of good ones. There's I one think there are a few. It seems it's, more good than others. I yeah, like although that's what I'm saying. I'm saying it, I right. Like Sam. One of the interesting things about this book is that there were times where I would read a character and I was like, "Is this character black or white?" And I couldn't be sure. Mm. You know, so for example, Ridgeway's assistant, not Homer, but the other one. Yeah. Uh, like I couldn't figure that Bozeman. out for a little while. Bozeman, yeah. Like I wasn't sure if he was black or white. Um, I'm pretty sure he's white, but like you know, it wasn't obvious when you first read it. And some, and similarly, some of the characters that assist in terms of the railroad and so forth. So, and it's not a bad thing. It just you know makes you think about it. And to get back to comparing it to Kindred, mm-hmm. this is a, a great book, and it deserves its awards, and he deserves all the plaudits. And you can put the swoon sound here. consider me swooning (sighs) I think in some ways and I don't think it's because I read it first I think Kindred will leave a deeper mark on me I've said this before Anna of everything we have consumed for this podcast I think Kindred is the thing that has continued to stick with me that is a novel that like at some point I want to reread it again uh, you know because it there are things about it that that stay with me. And also, I think the ending is fantastic. It was a both allegorically and just the plot device of, of, of what Butler did. I'm not sure this novel is going to stick with me in the same way. Or what's going to, what I'm going to remember from this novel is honestly the beauty of Whitehead's writing at various times. Mm. I mean, the, the man knows how to compose a sentence. And the sort of larger ideas that he's trying to communicate. I'm not sure it coheres quite in the same way that Kindred does for me. I agree. I think, and part of that is what they were aiming for, right? Yeah. yeah. But Butler's novel is more of a novel in some right. ways, right? It's, yeah. it's more tightly structured. It's It yeah. has the shape of, you know, beginning, middle, end. And this does, but it's loose. Right? No, there are ways in which you, I, I'll leave it this way. I'm not surprised that the, there was a television Although show made of this. Travel, because... It's funny because the, the Kindred's time travel, and yet it's much neater. <laughs> yeah. But like, it, there, there are ways in which I'm not stunned that Underground Railroad was turned into a TV show because there are clearly like, there's episodes. There's the Plantation yeah. episode, there's the South Carolina episode, there's the North Carolina episode, the Tennessee one, Indiana. And like, in some ways, it, it's the variety of racisms. It's like, you know. Like if you know yeah. Star here's Trek, the racist liberal, generation. Here's, here's or something. our racism yeah. that is fooling itself. Here yeah, is our exactly. explicit racism. Here is our explicit racism in a different way. Here is our mm-hmm. explicit racism in a different way. Yes. And I think also, if I ever get to speak to Colson, which I hope I do someday, <laughs> a question that I hope I am brave enough to ask him is to ask him about how he felt about depictions of violence. Yeah. In the book. Mm-hmm. And whether he felt like he should stay his hand, because I think Kindred is more brutal. 
I think, so this is where, it is more brutal, but like here I will give credit to Whitehead. I think there is a, like, this is the, let me put it this way, or this is a credit to, to Whitehead's writing, which is there is just enough savagery, particularly in the first part of the book, such that he doesn't need to go further. It, because at that point it becomes almost masochistic, is the way I would put it for the reader, and and in that sense I was I was grateful. Like in other words, by the time we got to page fifty, I was very happy that we were leaving the Randall Plantation because I was very clear about the hellhole that was the Randall Plantation, and we get exposed to different kinds of hell. But in each of those things, with the possible exception of North Carolina, you know, Whitehead is unsparing and yet spare in the prose, is the way I would put it. Is that he makes it very clear. Okay. There, there are sentences here where you go, oh, my God. This is not a, I'm not making a criticism. You're definitely turning this into, like, a, a compliment to him. I'm not yeah. turning this into a criticism. I just think it's right. interesting. And yeah. they're different products of different times. And But Octavia Butler is like, fuck you, read this with her writing yeah. about the yeah. brutality. Yeah. Like, it's not pornographic. It's not masochistic. But it is consistent. Right. <laughs> and also obviously she it, there's rape multiple times yeah in that in that book and while rape is talked about in this book he doesn't go very far with it at all which i think it's a kind be a good choice yeah. good yes mm-hmm. do that there's maybe too much of it in other places i just think it's an interesting it is a choice interesting way to put it. yeah fair enough it's a choice and i i would be curious about his thinking on that choice Speaking of choices, should we talk about the characters, Anna? <laughs> is our choice to talk about the characters? Yes, yes, our choice is to talk about the characters. I was briefly just, up, I'll remind people, that Cora is our main character. Mm-hmm. She's about 15 when she escapes. I think we're with her through her 20s, perhaps? Into her that 20s. was the impression I got. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but who are our other characters? Who stood out to you? Okay. Well, weirdly, like, there were there were characters that are clearly supposed to stand out. So Ridgeway, obviously, is the sort of the slave catcher who, you know, we sort of have a slightly parallel narrative and they occasionally intersect there's caesar who is also the slave who asked Cora to escape with him there is sam who is one of the underground railroad he's a friendly barkeep he's like one of he's he is one of the white characters that i think is not fooling himself that is a good way of putting it it's interesting there are there are a variety of smaller characters there's the the i I hate to use and use this word but there's the boyfriend in the indiana Section is it Floyd? Yeah. Royal. Or, royal, royal. Yes, sorry, it's royal. Royal. The character interestingly enough, the characters that I was most fascinated by beyond Cora, because Cora occupies a lot of space in the book. And it, it's, you know, she's a powerful protagonist. It was the North Carolina section in which you have Ethel and Martin, the sort of married couple. Martin sort of inherits being the station agent in the North Carolina part of the railroad, but it was supposed to be shut down. And so there's a passage where Cora is essentially stuck in the, the attic and watching Ethel and Martin trying to rationalize what they're doing, which to be fair, they are protecting Cora. Like, I don't think that, that, you know, and particularly Martin is actually protecting Cora, but watching them trying to deal with the fact that obviously in some ways Cora is also imprisoned was fascinating to me. And also Whitehead makes the decision, which is an odd one, to give, like, Ethel a slightly, like, her own interstitial chapter, which I was a little puzzled by. I didn't... Mm, yeah, I, it's interesting, because I, I feel like 
maybe he wanted us to know she's human. Yeah. Because like, she doesn't come off well. That's that's the thing. She right? starts by not coming off well, but she does like I mean she she you know, she takes care of Cora when she's sick. You right. know, she but kisses what that interstitial does yeah. Yeah. is kind of undermine that yeah. in a way. It it makes her more complicated. Right. But we go through a cycle with her before we get to her interstitial where first where she's kind of, you know, I don't know. Heroes and villains are not the way to talk about this. <laughs> no, this she's novel. just bitterly um, resentful that Cora's in the She's bitterly the resentful. She doesn't yeah. want Cora to be there. Yeah. And you don't like her. Cora doesn't like her. She's not, you know, a, an influence of, of, of. Right. She's a threatening influence or yeah. a, a threatening character. Mm-hmm. Then Cora gets very sick and she takes care of Cora. And we're like, oh, well, that's nice. And then we have the interstitial, which is revealed that her care for Cora is incredibly condescending and comes from a legacy of white supremacy itself, mm. which, hmm, you know, like, I, I guess it's interesting because um, one of the things I wanted to, to say in the beginning about Colson Whitehead is that uh, he is, his backstory is pretty unusual. His uh, back. His parents are... Yeah, his his parents are very successful executive recruiters of all things, and he huh. grew up in Tony, Manhattan. He went to a private mm-hmm. school. They had a vacation place in Sag Harbor. He's written a novel called Sag Harbor, I think. Yeah, right. And also, yeah. you know, he went to Harvard. Yeah, he had a upbringing. I want to say, so Anna, that is the. I think that might be the most generous time you have ever said someone went to Harvard in the sense of like, it was the yeah. least snarky time you have said that sentence. So yeah, <laughs> go ahead. So his backstory, he, he is, he must code switch mm. like a pro, yep. right? Like he has had this experience that in white America, pretty extensive, pretty fluent. No. And, and I think in, in like it, I think my wife actually did hear him speak at one point, I think potentially promoting this book. And he talks about growing up in an age where like he would watch I Dream of Genie and Gilligan's Island as a kid, you know, because those are the reruns on television. So he's also very much a Gen Xer. But sorry, go ahead. Yes. And his taste in music shows that as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I had to text Dan that Colson Whitehead in the acknowledgments, thanks, mm-hmm. uh, Sonic Youth, Prince, David Bowie and the Misfits. As his good. musical accompaniment. Good, good, good playlist there. God damn, it, he's cool. Yeah. But here's a little, so here's a little Philip on that, which is, I read an interview with him where he said his experience was so unusual. Mm-hmm. Parents of his friends would wander aloud if he was perhaps an African prince. <laughs> which is gross. <laughs> yeah. It's terrible. I mean, it's funny. Yeah but awful at the same time, right? Mm. Like the experience of these white parents, who I'm sure thought of themselves as good liberals, mm-hmm. was such that the way that they could make sense of a wealthy black family. Right. <laughs> Although also, I mean, at the same time, awful, terrible, and yet in some ways logical, sure. You know, like the experience of blackness in America is to not have generational wealth. Mm-hmm. And I'm bringing all this up in terms of the Ethel and Martin characters because I think that Colson Whitehead is not letting us off the hook. No, no, he's not. 
And he is he is doing an amazing job of making white people uncomfortable in ways that are still tolerable. Yeah, I mean, I hate to put it that way. No, it, I, well, I mean, it has to be put that way because, again, like you know, how do I put this? But he's he's definitely, but he's not giving an inch. No, he's not. But at the same time, and again, this goes to the sort of restraint that I think Whitehead does with a lot of his work, which is on the one hand. It's unsparing, but at the same time, you don't feel like you're being pummeled to, you know, repeatedly. I, I don't know how to put it other than that. And I think that's a function of him. Him must being an expert code switcher. Like yes. he knows how to talk to white people. He knows how to he knows how to make white people comfortable, and he right. knows how to make them uncomfortable as well. Right. And what he's doing is, it, in some ways, it's almost like a music conductor where he's trying to like he's trying to make us uncomfortable, but he's not. You know, he's got to hit the sweet spot of. He's not trying to sugarcoat stuff, but at the same time, if you are, you know, too uncomfortable about it, people don't read the book. Or it gets a different kind of attention. Or it leads to backlash, you know, it, it, yeah. Or, yeah. Or just a different kind of attention. I mean, like, because, like, Tony Easy Coat's also unsparing. Yeah. Fuck you. Like, mm -hmm. he doesn't say that exactly. But, like, he's much more in his, in your face about mm -hmm. w what he thinks of America. Yeah. Right. And, and what he thinks of white liberals and people celebrate him. But I think that's not what Carlson Whitehead is going for, right? No, but I mean, like, partly it's because they have different backgrounds. I mean, that goes to class. As well, well, yeah, and, and I'm also yeah. saying like, also, I don't think that's what he's going for. Yeah, right? yeah I agree. Like, yeah. I, I think that he's doing something a little different here. And I would argue much in the same way that I got on a little Martin Luther King trip doing research. Mm -hmm. Yes. Discussion. Uh-huh. And he points out, he does a speech talking about the NAACP, the Southern Leadership Conference, and the Urban League. And his speech is basically like, we need to do everything. Mm -hmm. We need to do separatism. He didn't say the word separatism, but we need to do radical things. We need to do things that people, white people are going to think are good. Mm -hmm. And we need to upset them too. Like, mm we we cannot make this progress just taking any one of these roads. Right. So. Anna, what about the characters that stood out for you? I think Caesar was gone much too soon. And if I ever speak to Mr. Whitehead, <sighs> I will ask him about that choice. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess I also really like the way he handled the romance or lack of romance between Caesar and Cora. Mm-hmm. I appreciated that Cora, <laughs> as someone who's a little bit off the dating scene myself, that sounds mm -hmm. terrible, but like her cautiousness with men was very relatable to me. Like, yeah, I not mean, just, and I don't, and I don't mean just because the violence that she's right. I mean, past, she's like, she's a rape survivor, obviously, but, she's, but no, and I have a yeah. Me Too story, but not not that, mm -hmm. but like, yeah. but just her general thoughtfulness about about men and I th look, her unwillingness to be touched even which yeah i kind of got i think one of the things that actually did was oddly give a sort of sweetness to like both the the where as she warms to caesar and then as she warms to um royal yeah royal it, like there there's a this this novel does not have a lot of sweetness in it and those are the few moments where i think it, it does emerge I also think Ridgeway was terrifying, like mm. a real terrifying character. And I will think about him some. I think yes, 
there's a I there's a speech he gives at one mind. point that we're, I'm going to read later when we talk about the IR portions of the book that like it it's it's an interesting manifesto. Let's put it that way. All right, next section, a new mm-hmm. section for our new way of doing books. Yep. I have entitled it Strange Beauty, and this is where we're going to share the lines that really resonate with us. Okay. Dan, what what moments of beauty resonated? Oh, with you? Lord. Well, so first of all, like I, I don't there's a couple food sections that 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 he does which I love. In the beginning, like there's a Oh, the barbecue scene. The barbecue scene in the Well, there's a barbecue scene in Indiana. There's also a a opening sort of feast scene in the Randall plantation. And he talks about, you know, the meal that's being prepared. He says, you know, the fire under the big cauldron cracked and whistled. The soup roiled within the black pot. Bits of cabbage chasing around the hog's head that bobbed up and down, the eye roving in the gray foam. And, you know, that was a nice, like, just sort of stuck with me. And then later there's the the feast passage in Indiana, and at one point he's talking, John Valentine, who's the sort of leader of that community, when he talks to new arrivals, says, says, the most delicious vision these eyes ever beheld, Valentine liked to tell the new arrivals, drawing out delicious as if ladling hot caramel. I love that, like, metaphor of ladling hot caramel. But there's a, uh, why don't you read some, and then I've got a few others. So, he does some really beautiful descriptions of things, right? And also these really tactile descriptions. Those are the ones that, that you've pointed out. There's some cool thoughts yeah, <laughs> as well. Just insights. This one kind of straddles the division between those two, two things. It's a thought that Caesar has. It tortured him at sundown to tear away from the pageant before him. The mesmerizing dance between commerce and desire. And that is Caesar leaving the town marketplace that he has been given f- freedom to participate in. Wait, uh, can I read? Because he's a skilled wood- woodworker. One of my favorite passages also involves Caesar in which he talks about meeting with Fletcher, who's the sort of first sort of head of the Underground Railroad that, that he encounters. He took Caesar into his confidence, risking that the slave might inform on him for a reward. Caesar trusted him in turn. He had met this sort of white man before, earnest in believing what came out of their mouths. The veracity of their words was another matter, but at least they believed them, which, I, again, is like actually manages to get a complex idea put forward about whites in this condition of slavery, at least the ones who thought of themselves as the good ones. And I really like that. And the Declaration of Independence makes uh, that could be actually a Chekhov's Declaration of Independence. Dan, that's a good point. Yes. Yeah, that's true. It does recur. Yeah, it recurs at, at various points. And guess what? It's given lie to, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> and there are some different thoughts about it. This is one of them. Now that she had run away and seen a bit of the country, Cora wasn't sure the document described anything real at all. America was a ghost in the darkness, like her. Hmm. I'm going to have a slightly more optimistic spin on that when we get to the IR part of it. But yes. Oh. Yes, I am. But similarly, actually related to this, there's there's a line in um, when she's in Indiana, which again, it's like a description of a word where someone tells her we're optimistic. And Cora says, you know, Cora didn't know what optimistic meant. She asked the other girls that night if they were familiar with the word. None of them had heard it before. She decided that it meant trying, which I did like and actually ties well into the sort of handcart scene later. And I will end, uh, I have more, 
but mm-hmm. it would we would sit we would be here a while if, if we each read yeah all we could each do lines. like yes yes that's a fair statement again this I is an exceptionally on, well-written book on one of the t- more tactile uh, carnal pieces of writing Ooh. very short but so good she's talking about a crowd mm-hmm. round white faces like an endless feel of cotton balls all the same material yeah yeah really good stuff mm-hmm. all right well dan you mentioned something earlier and, and now i have a question dan yes anna is there ir in this book anna versifying usually leaves me cold but I do reckon that I can see some IR in this novel. I'm, I'm so glad you read that in the tone that you did. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a book that is clearly about slavery and the way that it deforms everyone who is even loosely associated to the institution. But what Whitehead does, however, is to demonstrate the means through which it stays an institution, um, despite multiple reasons that it should fail. And indeed, Whitehead actually references this throughout the book, the idea that the demography of the South works against white people in the long term, the idea that rebellion is a constant, ever menacing threat, in fact, to white supremacy. And and indeed, Whitehead sprinkles the book with references of rebellions in Haiti and the Caribbean and slave revolts uh, in, in the South as well. And also, you know, not to mention the moral depravity of the institution. And the ways that that Whitehead cleverly does that throughout the book is first, he sets up the power structure, not just of the slave plantation, but the entire slave economy. I mean, the book starts with a prologue of Cora's grandmother being shipped, being captured and then, you know, shipped to uh, the United States. And one of the things that, that Whitehead mentions is that the ship owner made sure to, like, not fill his hold with all slaves from the same locale, recognizing that that would make it easier for them to organize. And instead, you sort of, you know, create divisions. And indeed, that's one of the things, one of the sort of recurring elements of, of white supremacy that you see is that is that the institutions are set up to not just, you know, make sure there's domination over the slaves, but also ways that slaves are divided against each other, that are pit against each other. Indeed, the book starts with this discussion of the hob as if it's like the social outcast, um, but also the ways in which whites grow resentful of slaves, particularly lower class whites, because they see them as an economic threat. We also see the sort of varieties of white supremacy on display throughout this book. We see this most obviously in the contrast between South Carolina and North Carolina. In South Carolina, the way I would put it is that, you know, the whites there at least feign a benevolent posture toward the black people who are residing there, when in point of fact, it clearly is a cover for things like basically their version of the Tuskegee experiment and a variety of eugenics attempts to sort of sterilize the black population and so forth. On the other hand, when we get to North Carolina, it is just naked, you know, near Holocaust level brutality in terms of the the treatment of of the African-Americans. And then the other thing that I would say that, that Whitehead does, and I'm going to start reading a few passages here, is that what is interesting to me is for all of the brutality that, that Whitehead recounts here, one of the other things he's doing is talking about the power of ideas and the power of ideology as a way of continuing power structures and also subverting power structures. So the, the passage that Ridgway says at one point that is the most chilling thing, I think, in the entire book is he's talking, he's captured Cora, and he says the following, You heard my name when you were a pickaninny, he said. 
the name of punishment, dogging every fugitive step and every thought of running away. For every slave I bring home, 20 others abandon their full moon schemes. I'm a notion of order. The slave that disappears, it's a notion too, of hope. Undoing what I do so that a slave the next plantation over gets an idea that it can run to. If we allow that, we accept the flaw in the imperative, and I refuse. What is There's a variety of things that are interesting in that passage, not the least of which Ridgway's constant use of the word it as a pronoun, which is just horrifying. He does, but that, that, that's, that's something that, that Whitehead continues through the novel. It's disturbing yeah. and... But Ridgway has a very sophisticated view of power here. He recognizes that his function is as a deterrent. And he recognizes that if that deterrent power erodes, so does slaveholding as an institution. So he recognizes that the idea and the fear that he can impose is incredibly important in order to maintain the institution. Now, where I'm a little more optimistic than Anna, I think, in terms of the ideas, particularly the Declaration of Independence, is that I think Whitehead also believes the idea of freedom and the idea of the sort of founding ideas, and this is something that Jill Lepore talks about a lot in her history, These Truths, is that the idea, the founding idea in the Declaration of Independence also holds a potency even for those who were not treated as persons in the Declaration of Independence. And that comes through towards the very end when Georgina at one point, you know, talks to her students in Indiana and says, the Declaration is like a map. You trust that it's right, but you only know by going out and testing it yourself. And the idea here is that if you can actually manifest the notion of all men are created equal and get it accepted, that is real progress. And that is something that I do think Whitehead believes in, despite all of the brutality in the book. And that the only way you achieve that is not just through violence. It's not just through, you know, rebellion. It is through changing the minds of both the enslavers and the enslaved that equality is something that is enshrined in the country and is something, therefore, that is worth attempting to achieve. That's also one of the premises of the 1619 Project, of course. Like, Nicole Hannah-Jones has written about it as... The, I don't know if anybody remembers the first 1619 <laughs> essay, mm -hmm. but what it's about is about the American flag that flew over her grandfather's front lawn. Right. And her argument being... America could not be America, and she means this in an ideological sense, an ideal sense, mm. without the work of slaves, right. without the work of, 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 of black people who freed themselves in ways that we don't talk about in history classes. We, we talk about being free. We talk about you know, slave people being freed. Mm. Whereas I think this end of this book is the notion of no, Cora freed herself. Mm -hmm. and that chains are only one part of slavery mm. and the notion of ownership is only one part of slavery like or one part of white supremacy i should say yeah i, I mean i don't know i mean if i get to talk to mr whitehead uh... i definitely will ask him about his level of optimism because fair, yeah I, I think i i also noted the passage that you did about the declaration of independence mm -hmm. i think it would be tough to say i would say maybe the novel is a bit neutral neutral with a oh slight no 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 I, yeah let me be clear i'm not saying this is an optimistic novel okay. i'm saying no 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 i'm not saying that in the slightest i i'm sorry what i am saying however is that i do think in the novel 
what Whitehead is suggesting is that to get to a better place, you really do have to... It, it does require... It's not just eliminating physical shackles. Yes. It's eliminating yes. mental shackles as well. And also, it's yes, and not just the mental shackles of people who were the physical ones. Yeah, yeah. But rather, it, there has to be a complete rethinking by on the part of everyone. Yeah. But yeah. this leads me to an, a question that I have for you, Anna. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this book? Dan, this nation shouldn't exist <laughs> if there was any justice in the world. For its foundations are murder, theft, and cruelty. And yet, here we are. Mm -hmm. There has been a lot of work done around the idea that modern capitalism could not exist without white supremacy and slavery specifically. Something that been accepted in mainstream historical conversation relatively modern times but you know civil rights leaders have talked about it for a long time right back to frederick Douglass, who is an influence we didn't we didn't talk about the lander lander's character yeah which is clearly the frederick in, Douglass inspired yeah frederick there's clearly like a frederick Douglass inspired character and i the that quote that i just appropriated <laughs> mm -hmm. is is from one of his speeches right one of the things that I think is a more relatively new insight that I really appreciate is that it's not just that, oh, yeah, slavery was part of capitalism because it's all this labor, right? Mm -hmm. Which is duh, obvious. Although the only people who didn't see that even at the time were actual Southerners who thought of themselves as not being in an industrial economy for some yep. reason. Who knows? Yep. <laughs> but one of the insights that's that's been more thoroughly sort of out in the open talked about these days is that slave owners participate in capitalism by inventing really sophisticated credit systems if nothing else like mm. all all that way of accounting for this labor and creating script and creating like a, accounts with other people there's some very you know creative accounting and i don't mean that in a well i guess i do mean that in a moral sense but not an illegal <laughs> sense and then the the ways that they thought about human labor and maximizing it in almost an assembly line approach to labor. So hmm. there's that. Uh, and, and it is also true that I sometimes think people don't, white people, don't quite grok <laughs> the magnitude of the in inequities of having had chattel slavery in our country, right? That... It continues to this day. Well, way the way I would put it, the way I would put it is this is this gets to a structural racism argument that makes a lot of people uncomfortable yes. because, among other things, to be to be fair, yes, you're born into the structural privilege, but it's not like you bore responsibility for, you know, the slavery. And so it's it's an it's an incredibly difficult conversation to have. The number that I like to use yes. to people for people who maybe have trouble kind of conceptualizing our place in this mm -hmm. is that as of 2019, mm -hmm. the average net worth of a white family in America mm. is 180,000. Right. And the average net worth of a black family in America is 24,000. Yep. And that is all, almost all 
due to generational wealth, due to right. the ability to own property, mm-hmm. which is something we can trace pretty directly. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. To slavery. So I think that's one way that we get a pretty just, you know, I, I, is there a critique of capitalism in this book? There, there is capitalism in this book. And it it's is the book is the answer. It, it yes. is the book. Yeah. And then the other thing I, I want to point out is something we've, we've mentioned, which is that white supremacy can't exist without, quote unquote, good liberals, mm. which is kind of the South Carolina portion. But I, I think you get a sense of it's it's there throughout mm. uh, in the strongest rebuke to it being that it's not white liberals that made the Underground Railroad run. Right. Right. Yeah. And I would like to read just a little bit mm-hmm. of a Martin Luther King quote about this. <clears throat> The white liberal must see that the Negro needs not only love, but justice. It is not enough to say we love Negroes and we have many Negro friends. They must demand justice for all Negroes. Love that does not satisfy justice is no love at all. It is merely a sentimental affectation, little more than what one would have for a pet. Love at its best is justice concretized. Love is unconditional. It is not conditional upon one staying in his place or watering down his demands in order to be considered respectable. He who contends that he used to love the Negro, but did not truly love him in the beginning because his love was conditioned upon the Negro's limited demands for justice. Hmm. Hard to follow that. No. So we're going to have a uh, real example of discordant notes. And with anything and have some discordant notes. This is a that was definitely a discordant uh, segue. What do you got from the Discord, Dan? Right. So these are questions that come from our patrons asking us about the various things that we're reviewing. We have one question here from Ramsey eighty who asks, "Do we have other?" And this is true that Underground Railroad is an example of magical realism. Do we have other favorites in the magical realism genre? Anna, I'm not sure how to answer this question because I, I think I have a favor, but I'm not sure it quali- quite qualifies as magical realism. So what about you? I have read so little like capital L literature in the past 20 years. Like <laughs> I have trouble answering this question. Like I read 100 Years of Solitude like everyone else did. That uh-huh. was good. I don't know. Like I, I also wonder if I'm making it too specific to use Gabriel Garcia Marquez as the, you know, one of the famous examples of magical realism. I think perhaps I'm I'm not counting some stuff that probably should count. We should do more of it, though, I think. That's possible. And certainly it does qualify in some ways, I think, for, for genre. I think the answer I have, and I'm not sure this qualifies, I have to be honest, because... Oh, it, I know. Oh, go ahead. George Saunders. Ah, Okay. I absolutely love George Saunders, especially his first short story collection. And I think that he's, he's, I don't know how he does it. He can, he works very specific in a very specific genre, but keeps coming up with new ideas and um, beautiful prose. So Hmm. I think Civil War Lands and Bad Decline, that is the, that is the first thing that he wrote. I mean, I'm trying to think what, and I'm not, I confess, I'm not someone who reads a ton of magical realism. So that might be on me. But the one thing that comes to mind is weirdly a book by James Hines called The Lecturer's Tale. It is a 
story about it. It's sort of a combination of uh, an academic farce meets Edgar Allan Poe, um, in which a adjunct professor who is on the way out, there is a freak accident. He has the power to use his finger to suggest things to anyone he wants. And of course, being an academic, he decides to use it to try to promote his his own professional standing within the English department that he is. He has this sort of limited, narrow range of, of view of what he can do. But I'm not sure that really qualifies as magical realism so much as gothic. And maybe this is my own defect. I'm not a... I Like you, I have not read a ton of magical realism, but I think those are the things that, that come to mind. You know, Dan... It's a mic of mine falling on... Oh! It's a debris field. Yeah. I don't know how much I have for our debris field here. I, I There's not much that can count as debris in this book. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It's all pretty important. Yep. So No, the only thing I have is, we've said this before, I now kind of want to read Underground Airlines by Ben Winters as a sort of mm-hmm. compare and contrast because I, you know, like it's, I'm intrigued by the premise of it. But beyond that, you know, again, we, I think we've, We've mined this book rather deeply. I don't know if there's like other asides to uh, to bring in. What do you have? There, I don't have anything except for another way that Colson Whitehead's completely charming. There we go. Go for it. Mentioned earlier, yeah. Swoon Sound. <laughs> He's a huge Stephen King fan, mm-hmm. which is not surprising to me. When we talk about his influences, he reads the same kind of stuff that we do, basically. <laughs> like he, yeah. he loves like mass market paperbacks and science fiction and comic books. Uh, and then in an interview that I read. I think the interviewer asked him if he had been a sickly child and that's why he read a lot. And he was like, no, I wish I had been like, I wish I'd been that, that sounds romantic. And I would have an excuse for the fact that I just wanted to stay inside and read. And <laughs> I actually had some surgeries and stuff, but love that answer. Mm-hmm. And I uh, love him also because he said one of the reasons he became a writer is because he wouldn't have to get dressed and go outside and meet people. He is a kindred spirit. Yep. I think we would get along great. I think we Mr. would. Mr. Whitehead. Yep, yep, you would. When we you actually would. meet. I would still be a little grumbly, but goddammit, he would charm the socks off me. I'm pretty sure of that. All right. So we have Nope coming up, and mm-hmm. then My Soul to Keep. By Tanana Rive Due. Tanana Rive Due. And then we are... I think we're doing the core next, right? Oh, yes, we're doing the core because... We are actually living it right now. The Earth's core is is slowing down. So it's slowing down. Yes, we will. It, it, no one needs to panic about this. We will get to that when we talk about the core. <laughs> we will get yeah. to the movie before the Earth's core actually yeah. stops right. spinning. Yes. And until then, keep this channel open for more.